This morning, something happened that changed my life. I thought I knew my brother, but I had dis- discovered this morning that he was not who I thought he was. Has that ever happened to you? You spend your whole life knowing something and then come to find out that what you knew to be true all along was not true at all. Maybe it's the words to a song. You spend your whole life singing them, and then one day you find out you've been singing the wrong words. It can be unsettling. But this, this is more than unsettling. This has turned my world around. You see, I found out this morning that my brother, my older brother, my big brother, was not crazy. He was, is, my hero again, just like he used to be. I grew up following my brother everywhere. I adored him. I wanted to be him. So it was painful when he began to change. He started saying strange things, making outrageous claims. He left home and began traveling around with strangers. He humiliated our family. We tried to stop him, to make him come home and stop stirring up trouble. But we couldn't control him. Finally, we gave up. It was so hard to lose my big brother. And I did lose him. It was as if he had died. I mourned as if he had died. And eventually, I got on with my life without a big brother. A week ago, when we came into Jerusalem for the Passover, I heard that he was in the city. I made it a point to avoid any place where he might be. But when I heard he'd been arrested, it was hard to pretend, even to myself, that I didn't care. Then came the shocking news that they were going to put him to death. Crucify him? I started walking out of the city in the opposite direction. I had to get away, as far away as possible. I couldn't care. I wouldn't. I walked blindly until I felt a chill breeze. I looked up and saw black clouds rolling in. The sky became dark, and I heard the distant roar of the crowd. I stopped and looked back. Suddenly, I knew I had to be there. I had to be with him at the end. I turned and ran back into the city, through the streets, terrified I would be too late. I got there in time. As I arrived at the top of the hill, I stumbled to a stop, shocked at the sight of my brother hanging on a cross. He was speaking to my mother and a man beside her. I pushed my way through the crowd to my mother's side just as Jesus raised his voice and cried out to God. Moments later, he was gone, and the reality of it all struck me. This was it. My brother was dead. This was the terrible end of our family tragedy. But this morning, everything changed. Unbelievably, miraculously, my brother, my big brother, came to see me 
Yes, he came to see me. He's not dead. He's alive. I don't understand how it could happen. But what I do know is that what I believed about him all those years is not true. He was not crazy when he spoke with authority or claimed to be the Messiah. It was all true. And not only that, this morning he gave me a mission to complete for him. He said he wanted me to be a leader of his church. Me, even though I didn't believe in him. This morning, my life has been changed forever. I want to run through the streets telling everyone I meet about my brother. He was dead, but now he is alive. And he's my hero again. He's my big brother. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that truth. And we ask that you will help us to understand more and more of that truth. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Have you ever had something happen to you that was so so unsuspected, so, so un, unreal, and, and so difficult to comprehend that, that you really couldn't believe it. I had one of those experiences about uh, a little over four years ago. If, if you're like me, you get uh, emails all the time that say, you know, you've won this, you've won that, uh, do this, do that kinds of things and you read these stories about people who reply to those or click the link and next thing you know people have stolen all of their stolen their identity and all their money. Well, I get this email that says, Congratulations, you're the winner. Well of course my first response is sure, right. And 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 it said that you've won the grand prize a forty inch Samsung L C D television. That kind of piqued my interest a little bit, but I've got, again, I've gotten a lot of those things. And I'm reading through this, and it says, respond in three days, and is this working, Mike? Not real well? Okay, I'll go back here. Can I use this handheld, Mike? Can we use that one? One, two, three, four, we good? One, two, we're not getting much. You getting some? Okay. All right, so I, I get this uh, this email, and it says, you know, if you reply to, to this within three days, you'll, you'll be eligible for the prize. Well, you know, I think, I'm thinking, this is no way. There's no way this is true. But they had enough details in the email that it sort of made me stop and think about it because it said you had entered this contest at the Samsung store in New York City between this date. And we had been in New York that day, and we had visited my niece who worked at the Samsung store. And we, and as I remembered it, 
I think I had signed up for some kind of drawing. So I called her and I said, Holly, I got this email from this company and it sounds kind of, you know, I don't know, suspect. And she said, well, who's it from? And I told her and she said, yeah, that's the company we use. And I, I couldn't believe it, but here is the TV sitting in our family room. You know, you, I, mean, I was stunned. There's no way that that would be true because we get these things all the time. And, and yet it was. And, and I think there's something of that in the story that Luke is telling us here in, in this gospel account of Jesus' resurrection. It's, he tells us in verse 11, the NIV says that when the women come back and tell them about what's going on, that the NIV says that they, they seem like nonsense to them. The, the, Philip's, uh, the Amplified Bible says that it seemed like idle talk. Philip says it's sheer imagination. And Wycliffe in his translation says it seemed like madness. And, and that's, that's what it feels like to them when they hear the women say, Jesus is risen. This is madness. The word that, that Luke uses here, lepos, is, is a word that originally has a technical meaning in the medical field. It's describing what someone is like when they have such a high fever that they're delirious. You know, they, they, they're talking out of their heads. They don't know what they're saying. If you go back later and you ask them about what they said, they don't remember it. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It also becomes a, comes to mean sarcasm. You know, we understand that. Somebody does something stupid, and our re- response is, way to go, Einstein. And we don't mean they're smart as Einstein, right? We're being, sar- we're being sarcastic about it. And, and this is how the disciples respond. There's no way. And it's the only time this word used in the New Testament, but we see the idea of the word throughout the scriptures. In Genesis uh, 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the angels come and they, to warn Lot and his family and, and the, it, this, the destruction is coming and Lot says to his sons-in-law, you got to get out of the city. It, it's going to be destroyed. And their response is, they thought he was joking. That same idea that, oh, come on, that's not really true. You jump ahead to Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison. He's going to be executed the next day. And God miraculously leads him through the spirit out of the prison. And he finds he walks down to the house where he knows the the Christians are meeting. And he knocks on the door. And the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. And she hears his voice. She recognizes that it's Peter. She's so excited she forgets to open the door. She runs back to to the believers who are praying for Peter to be released. And she says to them, Peter's at the door. And what do they say? You're out of your mind even though they're praying at the moment for Peter to be released. And it's that same idea that surely this cannot be true. But it is. And the heart of the, of the, of the resurrection story is, is something that we find hard to believe is true. And I suspect most of us here today would agree we believe Jesus rose from the dead. We wouldn't say, oh, that's nonsense. That's madness. It's it's idle talk. But does that come out in the way we live our lives? Do we really believe that the risen Christ is active in the world and in our lives and is changing things? 
Do we believe that because of the risen Christ, we now have the promise of eternal life? Do we have the promise to live forever with our Savior? That eternal life is, is our hope. It's a, it, it is a phenomenal hope that each of us has. But the hope of the resurrection is not limited to someday. The hope of the resurrection is about now. And I think more often than not, the sense of, of the madness of the resurrection as we see it in our lives and as we hesitate to believe is about more about now and how we live now than about how we will live then. And yet the, the story of the gospel and the power of the resurrection is not limited to someday. It's about now too. N.T. Wright makes the interesting observation that when you read the gospels, you don't find any mention of the resurrection connected to eternal life. When you read the gospel story, the resurrection stories in the gospels. Now you find that in some of the teachings of Jesus before that. You certainly find it in the writings of Paul and Peter and Revelation and the rest of the New Testament. But when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, what you hear is not, Jesus is raised, so we're going to live forever. Or Jesus is raised, so we're finally going to be free from this world. What you find in the gospel accounts of the resurrection is Jesus is raised. Now go tell people about it. Jesus is raised and your life is transformed. Jesus is raised and people need to hear that word. And you need to live in the power of that resurrection. If we believe that the resurrection is true, then that means we are not just set free from the guilt of sin, but we're set free from the bondage of sin. We're set free to live beyond mediocrity, but to live in the power of Christ who has risen from the dead. And I think sometimes we think of that as madness because we wrestle so much with sin. We'll never be free from it. We'll, we'll never get out of it. We'll, we'll never, we can never be any different, so I guess we'll just settle for how we are. And all the while, the risen Christ is saying, I have so much more for you, so much more than just mediocrity. I want to fill your life in such a way that you actually look like Christ. And when people look at you, they don't see you, they see me in you. We can so surrender ourselves to the risen Christ that what seems like madness to us can become reality. And how we live in this world then gets affected by Christ in us. So we care about things like evangelism and witnessing and justice and beauty. How, how we live in this world is important and it's a natural response to people who have been filled and changed by the risen Christ. It's not just about what we're going to do someday. It's what we're doing, how we're living, how we're thinking now. I think one of the ways in which the madness of the resurrection is difficult for us is, is as we face, as we've been talking the last couple of weeks, face the opposition in this world to Christ and to his people. And we have a tendency to think that the, most, the best strategy for, for responding to the opposition is to fight like the opposition. 
I mean, what they're doing is working. The world seems to be steeped in darkness, and seem, they seem to be making all the progress. And so the only way we're going to change that is to do what they do and to hold on to and grab hold of the strategies of this world of fighting back and of, of getting our way and believing that power is what changes things. But the madness of the resurrection says that when we look at the people who oppose us and who oppose Christ, instead of seeing them as a foe to conquer, we see them as people to love. It's love that's going to change the world. It's love that sets us apart from all the other people of the world who are opposed to Christ. That when we're opposed, instead of fighting back like everyone else does, we love. We speak the truth with kindness and gentleness. We care about people. And we're more concerned about how we live the journey with Christ than just where we're gonna, that we're going to get to some end. It's the day-by-day living, surrendering to Christ that feels like madness sometimes. Because it feels like we're losing. It feels like we're giving up. It feels like surrender and sacrifice. And we are always trying to avoid that. And yet, that's the way of Christ. The resurrection is only possible because Christ surrendered himself and went to the cross. And our witness, our presence in this world is only possible. It only makes any difference if we use the same strategy and plan as Christ to surrender, to sacrifice, to give of ourselves and to let Christ live in us and through us. It's such a different way of thinking and living that it feels like madness to us. And yet it's the power of the resurrection. And so we care about justice. We care about people who are in need. And, and we, we live in this world to, with a spirit of risking for Christ and of engaging the world with Christ and caring about people in the world because of Christ. It changes what we do here. I, mean, I think that's what Paul is saying at the end of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we read a few moments ago. You know, he, he's talked about the resurrection and, and he's talked about eternal life and the promises that are ours. And he gets to that the last section and he says, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? It's been overcome. And you get to the last phrase, he says, therefore, live your lives worthy of Christ because what you do in this world is not in vain. It's not worthless. Being people of the resurrection means that we are people who live in this world with purpose, with the spirit of Christ to bring about change, to bring light into a world that is steeped in darkness. But I don't think the I don't think the disciples' response to, to the report of Jesus' resurrection is just about the resurrection. I don't think they respond with, that seems like nonsense, that's madness, simply because they can't fathom someone rising from the dead. I think it also has to do with the people who are reporting it. I mean, in that culture, people have a low view of women. 
And the women have, you know, they, they, they don't believe. Women are not credible witnesses in that culture. Now, you know, that may offend you. It kind of offends me. But that's the way it was. And what's so amazing is that one of the strangest things about the resurrection story is that women are the first witnesses of what God has done in Christ. It's the craziest thing in the world. In my opinion, it's one of the proofs for the reliability of the scriptures. Because if you were going to make up a story like this and you wanted people to, to embrace it and you wanted to impress people, the last thing you would do is to choose people who are not credible witnesses to be the witnesses. I mean, it's, in, in that culture, it's kind of embarrassing that the first witnesses are women, and yet they are. And they have far more faith than the men do. Someone said to me, I wonder what would have happened if, if the men went to the tomb and the women stayed back. I, don't, I doubt if the women would have said that seems like nonsense. They had a lot more faith than the men did. But it reminds us that, that sometimes, sometimes the madness of the resurrection is remembering that our God loves to work in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. And often... Often God works through people we might consider not credible witnesses. People who don't have credibility to tell us what to do or, or how to live or, or to have any word from God to us. But when we do that in our we do that all the time, just in general life. I mean, you know, if I went to to took my car to the auto mechanic and he said to me, I don't know what's wrong with it. And I began to make some suggestions. He would say, this is ridiculous. I mean, he knows me well enough to know, I don't know the first thing about a car. You know, he could be working on, on the, on the back brakes and I might say something about the carburetor. You know, he, he, he would, he would, he wouldn't listen to me. You know, and, and we do that all the time in our, in our culture and the way we operate. And we do it in the kingdom. We do it in the church. You know, we have, if we have more theological training, then surely somebody who has very little has nothing to say to us. If we've been Christians a long time, surely someone who's just beginning on their journey with Christ has nothing to say to us. As adults, surely children have nothing to say to us. And yet over and over and over again, that's the way God works. God is continually bringing people into our lives that we would not expect to have a word for us from him. And we are continually confronted with whether or not we're going to believe that word. I think one of the reasons God does that is because it challenges our ability and our willingness to trust him. To be, uh, it challenges our spirit of openness that God can work through means that we don't expect. And he's continually confronting us with the question, are we willing to hear that? Are we willing to see it? Are we open enough to let God work through things that we wouldn't anticipate? Now, does God have patterns in the way he works? Of course. But I've discovered one of his consistent patterns is to walk, work outside of the patterns. You know, God loves to color outside the lines. He loves to push us to places that we think we 
we don't need to go. Because he's continually wanting us to grow in him and develop faith and to become more mature. And one of the significant ways in which we do that is through a spirit of openness and trust. A couple of years ago, we experimented through the year of, of bringing things from the global church into our, some of our worship times some music and, and a variety of things because we wanted to send a subtle message that that we as Americans don't have the market on the church, though we tend to feel that way. I mean, in general, Americans tend to be fairly arrogant toward the rest of the world. We tend to think that that, you know, we have all kinds of things that the world ought to hear from us. We're not near as open about listening to the rest of the world. And we do that in the church too. But I believe that there are, there are people all over the world who have much to teach us. When we pray for the persecuted church, a part of me feels awkward praying for them because I feel like they ought to be praying for us. I mean, they're going through things that... that that say, send messages about who they are and about their faith in ways that you and I don't ever experience. And the depth of those experiences that they are going through, I think, have as much to teach us. As we were going through this a couple of years ago, if you were here, I'm wondering, what was your response? Was there a sense of, hey, we can learn something from folks? And it might be things like, you know, I, I, maybe I can get something. Maybe God wants to speak to me through music that I tend to dismiss as not that good. Or through people who I'm not sure I need to listen to. Or circumstances that are, that are outside of what I think are the ways in which God speaks and works. And I think we tend to view that as madness, nonsense, and we ignore it. And all the while, we are missing out on some spectacular things that God wants to do in us and for us and through us. I think memory is one of the ways in which we can begin to grasp the voice of God and the ways in which God works. Because when we look back and we remember what God has done, we've, we are challenged about the ways, what God is doing in the present. If God was faithful then, we can count on him to be faithful now. If God spoke in those ways then, we can be confident that he's probably still going to speak in these ways now. And you, you notice as the women go to the tomb and they find that it's empty and they're shocked by that. And these two angels appear to them and they say, Jesus is risen. And they're, what? And he says, don't you remember? And the angels begin to tell them, remind them of things Jesus said. And the light goes on. And they do remember. And they believe. And you and I often have short memories. We don't, we don't put into our minds, we don't find ways to remind ourselves of how God has worked and what God has done. That's why immersing ourselves in the scriptures is so important. I think about a story like uh, Naaman 
in 2 Kings. Naaman, a Syrian uh, captain, contracts leprosy, and he tries everything he can, and nothing works. And he has a servant girl from Israel, and she says, I know a guy in Israel who can do something about this. And Naaman goes to Israel, and he, he's standing before Elisha's door, and he says, hey, I hear you can help me. And Elisha says, well, I can't, but God can. Here's what you do. Go down to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. And Naaman's irritated. Hey, why would I do that? I don't want to put myself in that position. I don't, I don't need that. We have rivers in Syria that are a lot cleaner than the Jordan River. Elisha says, well, suit yourself, but if you want to be healed, that's the plan. And Naaman turns and walks home. And he starts his way back, and his, one of his servants, an unexpected voice, says to Naaman, uh, Sir, could it really hurt? I mean... Would it be that big of a deal? Isn't it worth a shot? And Naaman says, all right. And he goes down to the river and he, he dips in the river. The first time comes up, nothing. The second time, nothing. The third time, nothing. The fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, nothing. And you, I'm sure he's getting impatient. And he goes down that seventh time and comes up and he's clean. And he goes away rejoicing. Because he listened to an unexpected voice and did something unexpected. When we begin to immerse ourselves in the scriptures and we create a Christian memory, we are much more open to hearing God's voice when he speaks to us in ways that we might not expect. And we look back at our own lives and we look at the lives of, of others that we know and people through history and we see God working in them. And every time we, we remember those stories, it helps us to be a little bit more open and to see the things God wants to do, not as madness, not as nonsense, but as hope when we feel hopeless. It's often about listening, seeing, watching for the unexpected. I suspect that there are uh, some of you here today who who love watching uh, college basketball. And I suspect there are some of you here today who don't like watching college basketball. If you've been around me very much, you know I like watching it. And my favorite time of the basketball season is when the tournament is, is the basketball tournament that just finished. The Monday night, the Kentucky Wildcats won the championship, and you know, they had a great season and a great team. But you know, my favorite part of the tournament's not the championship game. It's not the build up to the final four teams. My favorite time of the tournament are the first two full days of games. Each day, Thursday and Friday, 16 games each day. 32 games on those two days. In the last few years, John and Andrew and I have gotten together, and, and we start about noon, and, uh, you know, it goes till after midnight. And we've discovered that by the time you get to about 6.30, 7 o'clock, you need to step away a little bit and a little bit of a break because you're starting to get glassy-eyed, and it, every game, which, red, which team with the red uniform is that? You know, these games are going on at the same time, but... You know, it's just, it's fun to watch the game after game after game. 
But what I love the most about those days is that there are always teams you don't expect who win. You know, the, the, this year, two teams seated 15th beat a team seated 2nd. And you have every year, there are teams that no one gives a chance to win, and they do. And, and we watch because there is this anticipation and this hope, and we love watching the underdogs win. And we've gone to a few of these games in the arenas, and when two teams are playing that, you know, they aren't really that connected to that particular area, they come from other different places, when the, if an underdog is close, as the game is winding down, the crowd really gets behind them, and it feels as if it's a home game for them. And they're cheering every play for this underdog team because there's something about the underdog winning that we like. Something about the unexpected. And we worship a God who loves the unexpected. This is the God who caused a virgin to carry a child. And his son to be born in a stable. And to be crucified on a cross. And he rolled away a stone from the front of a tomb. This is the God who says, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you become like a child. This is the God who is challenging us continually to his unexpected ways into, as one person said, his divine madness. As you think about your life and your connection to the resurrection and the work of God in your life, are you living with that sense of openness, listening, watching, believing, When God speaks, when God acts, it's not madness, it's hope. Gracious Father, the resurrection is such an amazing thing. We we really can't even begin to to comprehend what it means that Christ who was dead is alive and all that that means for us. But we do know that through his resurrection, we have life, not just in the world to come, but now as well. Father, we believe that as you have worked in unexpected ways and through unexpected people and circumstances through the centuries, you continue to do that, and we want to be open to it. So help us. Help us to remember. Help us to live with that sense of hope with our eyes open wide and our hearts open wide, and our spirits open wide to your grace and power and word that we might become more and more like Christ. We pray this through the power of Christ.
Amen.